morning. Woo, come on, we can do better than that. Good morning. There we go. Good to see everybody. Thank you guys for tuning in in the room next door, watching in our overflow space uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Connor Bales. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here at the North Campus. If you're a guest with us, as Caleb mentioned a moment ago, we're really uh, glad to have you here uh, today. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you go with me to Matthew chapter 25? Matthew chapter 25. And as Caleb uh, mentioned a moment ago, today is a day where we rightly uh, celebrate and show gratitude uh, for the United States of America. It is truly a privilege to be living in this great nation, and we need uh, to rightly give honor where honor is due and to show appreciation and thankfulness to God uh, for allowing us to be here. But the scriptures are clear that in addition to gratitude, we should be praying for those that are in the leadership of our nation and of our government. And so I thought it would be most appropriate this morning uh, that we take just a few minutes at the top of the service to pray together uh, for our leaders, for our president, for our governor, for those that are in local leadership and willing to sacrifice and to serve, for those that are in our armed services, our first responders. It is truly a privilege to call the United States our home, but we need to beg God for wisdom and courage and boldness for those that he has entrusted uh, to lead us as a people. So would you join me for a moment of prayer? Father, thank you so much for this day, and thank you that this week is a time set aside in our nation's calendar to be able to rightly thank uh, you for the privilege of being raised and to live here. And uh, God, thank you for the work that you're doing uh, in our country. We believe, God, uh, that wisdom is required uh, to serve and to honor and uh, to do work for the good of others. Uh, and so, Father, I'm praying now for our president, for President Biden. I pray for our governor, Governor Abbott. I pray for our local leadership, Mayor Bristol and others on our school board. I pray for our first responders, our police, our fire, our paramedics. Father, I pray for those that are serving in one of the branches of our armed services. I just pray for a supernatural measure of protection, blessing, courage, wisdom, and boldness. And God, I just thank you for the privilege that it is to call myself a citizen of this great nation. Uh, and to whom much is given, much is required. So may we as a people continue to be a bright light in the world that heralds the hope that freedom brings. Thank you mostly for the freedom that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, your son, in whom all things are possible. We pray to you and through you in Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, so a couple of weeks ago, we began a sermon uh, series for the summer entitled The Parables of Jesus, and we started that with an examination of Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep, and I hope that if you were here for that, that that has been an encouragement by way of reminder to all of you of the necessity we have to go and to tell others who are lost, who are still far from God. A takeaway from that Sunday was this little statement. I, maybe this will resonate with you, but that is found people, find people. And so if God found you, then be in the business of helping uh, to serve that he might also find others who are still far away. And then last Sunday, uh, we talked about the parable of the rich fool and the idea that it is meaningless to identify your life based on who has what, but rather a, a person's life is valued based on who has who. And so you need to ask yourself, do I belong to God? And what am I doing to steward what he has entrusted to my uh, care? And and so that leads us to today's message, and it is the parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew chapter 25. And this is really a parable of 
warning. It's a parable of urgency. It speaks clearly to the danger of this reality, not being spiritually prepared. Jesus highlights the danger of not being found spiritually ready. And we know the necessity of readiness and what happens when we're caught unprepared. When I was in high school, I can remember my mom and dad getting up on a Saturday morning, waking me up and telling me that they were going to run errands with my younger brother and that I needed to get up. I needed to get dressed. I needed to start uh, working in the yard and that my parents would be home just after lunch. And they wanted to know that I had already begun uh, that work. That was my dad's charge to me uh, that morning. Might've been a little more frank, might've had a few less words, but I knew what he wanted me to do. And so after I rolled my eyes and said, yes, sir, uh, then they left and I went back to sleep. And about late morning, 10, 30, 11 o'clock, I kind of wandered out of bed and went to the couch and started watching SportsCenter. And I just was being so lazy and not doing anything that my dad had asked. And so time got away from me. And the next thing I knew, I was startled by the sound of the garage door opening. You know what I'm talking about? And I was still in my pajamas. I was still lounging on the couch. And so I immediately hear the garage door and I jump off the couch and run through the back door. And I'm trying to fire up that lawnmower as fast as I can in my pajamas, hoping that I can somehow convince my dad that I have been doing the work that he asked me to do. And I just think that we need to be reminded there is a danger in thinking that as it relates to our spiritual preparation we can spring off the couch at the last minute and convince our heavenly father that we are doing what he's been asking us to do. That we will find ourselves, if we're not careful, spiritually unprepared. And that's the warning that Jesus gives. Now, he teaches this particular parable uh, by highlighting the uh, a work of a Jewish, a first century Jewish uh, wedding and all the ways in which that festivity uh, would take place. And really, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the teaching is kind of congruent. In fact, scholars tell us this is known as the Olivet Discourse, likely a long conversation Jesus has answering his disciples' question on how we will know when the end is going to come. And so Jesus does a fairly extensive teaching on the eschaton or on the study or the understanding of last things. And he talks about there are warning signs that you can pay attention to, but he really breaks the teaching down into two primary thoughts. The first is no one knows the day or the hour. Clearly four times in Matthew chapter 25, you're going to see him say it again. I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 24, uh, you're going to see him say it again today in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus says specifically, no one knows the day or the hour. That's one of the reasons why it's always dangerous when you advertise a teaching on end times in a local church, because inevitably somebody's going to show up with their Bible and they've got a chart. And they want to know, okay, does your teaching line up with what I know the chart has revealed when Jesus is going to return? And I would just say this, if you have a chart or have sat under the teaching of someone who has a chart, run! No one knows the day or the hour, okay? So no one knows exactly when Jesus is going to return. He says there are signs that you can look for that can tell you it's getting closer and closer and closer, but no one knows exactly when it's going to come. Here's the second big idea. Since no one knows when... Everyone should be prepared right now. That's what we're going to see. That's the urgency that comes with the teaching today. Since none of us know when, everyone must determine whether or not you are prepared 
uh, today. And so Jesus uses this wedding illustration, these 10 virgins, to kind of highlight and emphasize the necessary urgency that comes with the understanding of spiritual preparation. Matthew chapter 25, let's read it together. Start with me in verse number one. Matthew 25, starting in verse one. If you're there, say, I got it. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour. Now, from time to time, I think it's helpful. I do this often every time I prepare to preach a message. I read multiple translations of the scriptures because it helps to illuminate things based on how the translators might have rendered one word versus another. And so I think it just provides for a fuller understanding. And occasionally I like us to do the same in our corporate time together because I hope that it can illuminate something that I think Jesus wants us to see crystal clear. And so I'm going to read to you this same parable, but from the New Living Translation. It's not a better translation. It's not a worse translation. It's a different translation that has a more modernized uh, language uh, associated with it. So let me read this same parable to you. You can follow along on the screen behind me. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by a shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and they prepared their lamps. And when the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough oil for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. And then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. And so you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. I just want to make a note here. Not every parable uh, has detail that should be understood symbolically. So not every detail of every parable has some deeper symbolic uh, meaning. The best way to understand the significance or the meaning of a parable is to see how Jesus explains them. That's how you know you're most accurate in your understanding. But there are some details that Jesus explains that help us to understand the particular urgency of this parable and the spiritual readiness that Jesus is hoping the people will understand. And for added context, I, I think it's important that we know uh, 
uh, there are some subtle differences in a first century Jewish wedding as compared to how you and I celebrate a wedding and marriage uh, today. So a first, century, a first century Jewish wedding had three primary parts. The first was the engagement. So the dad of a groom and the dad of a bride would get together and they would work out an arrangement for their children to be wedded one to another. And so they would figure out what the bride price is and then they would negotiate and agree to that. This seemed like a good union between these families. These are good kids. And so that was the engagement. That was the parents uh, uniting themselves, these families together through the wedding of their kids. The second part was known as the betrothal. A betrothal was a wedding ceremony, and it was actually when the bride and the groom who had prior been engaged would now come together and exchange vows. They would enter into a marriage covenant. They would make a vow before God, before family, friends, and to one another that they would remain uh, true. It was very much like our wedding ceremony today. It was the exchanging of vows. And it was often celebrated with family and, and friends within the village where those couples uh, were going to be uh, a wed. But then after the betrothal, uh, the groom would have up to a year to ready his life financially to be able to now support a family of his own. So maybe he would go home and add a room onto his family's house, or maybe he would secure his trade so that he could begin earning more income to provide for the family that God had now given to him. But he would not be united with his wife. She would go back to her parents' house, and then he would spend up to a year readying his life for his new wife. And then there was the wedding ceremony. And that was really the culmination of all these moments in time that had been leading up to this great union of a husband and a wife together. And so the groom would gather together with his uh, friends and family. And then when he was ready, when he had prepared his life to be able to take this wife for himself, then he would march through the city streets like a parade. And he would go to the bride's house. And of course, she had her girlfriends there. That's the 10 virgins. That's the 10 bridesmaids. They had gone to wait with her because they know the groom was on his way. So the parade was heading into town through the village. Everybody's cheering and celebrating. And then he would, from her parents' house, collect his bride and they would go back to his home where there would be a party that would last up to a week. It was a total event. And so it's in this moment that we see Jesus setting the scene. These bridesmaids are a part of the festivities, but what you're going to see is there are some who are identified as ready for the moment when the groom shows up, and there are others who are identified as being unprepared. And so it's significant because we know within the larger context, Jesus is clearly talking about who's in and who's out. Jesus is talking, make no mistake about this, about who's saved and who's not. And he's defining himself as the bridegroom, and he's talking about his church as the bride. And so I think there's a few things we should pay attention to, and here's my cards on the table for you this morning. As clearly as I know how, and I believe as, the, as clearly as the scriptures allow, we're going to be challenged as to whether or not we know the groom. Every single one of us has to define for ourselves whether or not we are spiritually prepared for when Jesus is going to return. And so if you're a note taker, here's the first thing you need to understand. Salvation is possible. It is possible. Now, I, I don't think I have to do any convincing. It's necessary. If you're being completely honest, you know that you're a sinner. 
that you've thought bad thoughts, that you've said bad words, that you've done bad things, right? That sin, those bad things is what separates us from God. And it doesn't take anyone, any time, if you're being honest, to, to admit that you are a sinner. And if your sin separates you from God, then there has to be some means of salvation by which we then can be restored. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has not sinned, and yet he took the punishment for our sin. And when we trust in his work, then we are reconciled, restored to God. Salvation is in fact uh, possible, but simply because it's possible does not mean it's certain and sure. In fact, we know that salvation is the significant meaning of the parable that Jesus gives because the very first sentence of the very first verse in Matthew chapter 25, it says the kingdom of heaven is like. It doesn't say the kingdom of this world. It doesn't say the kingdom of your best effort or mine. It doesn't say the kingdom of our upbringing or all the good things for God we think we've done. It says the kingdom of heaven, those who are in and those who are out. And the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then Jesus gives the parable of those who are in and compares it with those who are out. And and I'll, I'll just draw your attention to this fact. There are 10 bridesmaids. You see that, right? There are five who are defined as wise because they have the oil that is necessary to be able to keep their lamps lit until the groom shows up. And there are five who are defined as foolish because they don't have enough oil and they somehow have fallen away or been unprepared. And then when the groom shows up, they're left wanting. And and here's the thing. I don't think Jesus means for us to take this as a formulaic equation, but I do think it's worthy of our paying attention to the reality that half of the audience that he identifies as knowing the groom and being intelligent enough to show up to the wedding doesn't have what it takes to actually get into the ceremony. 50% of the audience that says they know the groom is not known by the groom, and therefore they don't get in. Have you thought about that? Like if we were going to take a survey, do you understand the majority of people where we live, the majority of people would check the box and say, I'm a Christian. It's because they know God, they've been around the things of God, they grew up in a family that raised them in light of their faith in God, right? But if Jesus is helping us to understand anything, it's that when the groom returns, there are going to be some who are found out as to be not known by God. This is scary. Salvation is possible, but that doesn't mean it's certain and sure. Uh, my, my son Coleman and I watch a lot of golf on television. Just what Mary says, we, it's all we watch, but it's not. But we watch a lot of golf, okay? And on the PGA Tour, which is the highest level of professional golf, uh, when an athlete has done enough to qualify uh, to, to participate on the PGA Tour, they get a player's badge. And it's like something they clip on their belt that gives them entry or they get behind the ropes. So they're given access into the field where only those who belong are allowed uh, to play. The rest of us, despite how much we might know about the game of golf, despite how much we might actually love about the game of golf, we're on the other side of the ropes. We are spectators, but we have not been invited to join and to play. So too it is with the kingdom of God. The badge for every Christian is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that gets you inside the ropes of heaven. Everyone else will be on the outside looking in. And it doesn't matter how much you know about the rules. 
It doesn't even matter how much affection and appreciation you have for the game. It's only if you have been given the badge. And so you then think, well, what is the badge? Well, John MacArthur says that the oil that keeps the lamps burning is, is what he defines as necessary grace. It's the necessary grace of salvation that belongs to every person who has entered into a right relationship with God. And grace is a fantastic word. In, in the Bible, grace means unmerited favor, meaning this. Your salvation is not something you have earned, and it's not something we deserve. It's a free gift that God gives, Romans 6, 23. In fact, the Bible would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that the only means for us to enter into this right relationship with God is by His grace. This is what Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The psalmist would write in Psalm chapter 3, in verse 8, that salvation is from the Lord. It's not from us. It's not from someone for us. It is from the Lord. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he expresses grace in this way. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is easy, but it isn't cheap. It requires God's grace. It is possible, but guess what? It's up to every single person to decide. In, in fact, um, I had breakfast this week with a friend of mine, and he's been wrestling with whether or not he is a Christian for at least a decade. And he confided in me this week, despite the embarrassment that he actually felt, that he grew up in a family of faith, and he is today married to a great woman of faith, and he is attempting to raise his kids in light of that faith, but he just questions and has always questioned as to whether or not he's truly been born again. And my counsel to him was, listen, if you are having this stirring, and if you're having this doubting, and if you're having these questions, I don't believe that God wants you to. And so you need to pray and surrender and give your life to Christ. And what you'll discover is you are either sure in what was already there or God began in you a new work where it was absent before. But either way, you can leave this breakfast this morning knowing that completely and fully you belong to him. And there are some in this room who don't have the oil. You're missing the necessary grace. You've done all these great things for God. You've been around the things for God, but you're knocking on the door, and if he were to show up today, it's closed, and he would say, you know me, but I don't know you. But salvation is possible. Yes, it's necessary, but it is possible if you choose to exercise faith and believe. Here's the second thing I think Jesus wants to draw our attention to. Not only is salvation possible, it's personal. Salvation is personal. Surely you recognize this by now, that salvation is not a warranty. It's non-transferable. It's non-transferable. That means every person has to make a decision for himself or herself as to what they believe and to whom they belong. Necessary grace is personal. Every person has to decide what they believe for themselves. And I'll even tell you how I arrived at that conclusion from the text. Did you notice that the bridesmaids don't share lamps? Right? The bride, like, there's, it's not two 
lamps or two bridesmaids for every lamp. It's, it's one lamp for every bridesmaid. Every virgin has her own lamp. And did you think about this? The oil within those lamps is exact. Because there are some who have enough and there are others who do not. And so the necessary grace is necessary for each person to, de- uh, uh, to decide for themselves as to whether or not they are spiritually prepared, knowing that no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus is going to return. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty of this. I think some of you might be as well, that when you have a, a sports team that you love or an, an affinity for a team that you'll identify yourself with them, and so you'll say, man, we lost a tough one Sunday, right? Or, man, we had a big win on Tuesday night. And I always wonder then later when I think about that, like when I say we, I'm, I'm like, you know, or somebody comes up to me and say, Pastor, man, we won a good one last Sunday. And I'm like, I'm, you don't look like an athlete. Now, I don't say that. <laughs> I don't say that. And I'm just going to. But, you know, we identify ourselves. But it's one thing to be around the team. You with me? It's totally different to be on the team. And as it relates to Team Jesus, there are a lot of people where we live that are around the team. But I am terrified. This is what haunts me as your pastor. You ever want to know what keeps me up at night? It's this. That there's a lot of people who are around the team. It's the easy box to check where we live. But because you've never chosen to place faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not actually on the team. You're not actually on team Jesus, but you can be. You just got to decide for yourself because you know God has no grandchildren. Despite the faith of your parents and your grandparents, despite the family of faith that you grew up in and all the things that have been poured into you, if you don't make the decision for yourself, the lamps are individual, the oil is exact, you have to decide what you believe and to whom you belong. Parents, do you understand that as good as you raise your kids, the greatest mission field God has entrusted to you is in your home. And your kids are not going to get into heaven. They're not in right relationship with God simply because you are. Husbands, despite your faith and your prayers, your spouse will not enter into heaven simply because you do. Same for you wives. Every person must decide for himself and herself what they believe. These 10 bridesmaids, man, like they knew the groom. These aren't like strangers. These aren't people from the next town over. This isn't a different religion or some different worldview or system of belief. These people know the groom. They know the groom. They're waiting for the wedding feast. They've even got some of the things that you would think are necessary to be at the wedding. But because they're missing the necessary grace, because their individual relationships are not right with God, then the Bible says that when they're trying to figure that out, that the groom shows up and that when they then knock, he says, believe me, I don't know you. Like, you know me, but I don't I don't know you. This is, I think, what the Apostle Paul meant when he challenged the church in Corinth. You know, the Corinthian church was a mixed up group of people. 
They had a lot of things that were infiltrating that local church because Corinth was a significant city of trade, had great regional influence. And so there was a lot of different ideas and worldviews that were kind of creeping into the church and causing confusion amongst the people who belonged to God. And so at one point, Paul writes his second letter to the church in Corinth, and he basically challenges the church, and he says, you got to figure this out for yourself. you got to decide for you. This is his words. He says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test. Your faith must be your own. You cannot get into heaven or enter into right relationship with God simply because someone else that you know has. This has to be an individual decision. Salvation is personal. The question is, is it personal for you? Is it personal for you? And I I think even right now, like my friend at breakfast this week, there are some of you who are wrestling. And what I'm telling you is, You may wake up tomorrow wrestling, but you can leave today with an anchor in the ground knowing that you have surrendered your life to Jesus. And what the Bible said it takes for a person to be saved from sin is God's grace by your faith, and it's not a result of our works. And so tomorrow morning you wake up and you're still wrestling with some doubts or some confusion or some angst about what it is that you have done. Thank God it wasn't contingent upon you for that work to be sound and secure in Christ. It's a work that he does. And so my question, why would you wrestle anymore? But I love you, and I can't do it for you. Salvation is possible and is personal. The question is whether or not it's personal for you. And that leads me to the last, and this is where Jesus kind of concludes. It's priority. It's priority. Like you recognize this is the main thing. This is the main thing. In fact, the very warning, the stern word of warning that Jesus closes the conversation with in verse 13, watch therefore. Other translations say, look out. Keep watch. Pay attention. Because you don't know neither the day nor the hour. Did you hear that? Because Jesus has already said, There's two parts to this process. The first is you got to get ready, and the other is you got to stay ready. And some of you today have fallen asleep. And listen, that's happened. That happens. There's a complacency, and you can grow apathetic, and maybe the scripture says grow drowsy. I get that. But maybe today is a wake up call. You got ready a long time ago, but you haven't stayed ready in case he comes today. But did you know that others of you still haven't gotten ready? You're like I was when my dad had told me to do the art. You're just lingering on the couch of life, and you're waiting, hoping that maybe somebody else will take care of a faith that has to be individual and personal to you. You need to get ready. You need to get dressed. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ and decide what it is that you believe and to whom it is that you belong. My daughter, Catherine, is now 19. I was uh, talking with uh, Caleb uh, Moore, our worship pastor, earlier today, 
and uh, his, we were at a ministry event this week, and I got to see his family, and he's got this amazing little girl, and she's like two, and she's so much fun. She's figured out her personality, and she's, you know, what it's like when she knows she's being funny, knows she's being cute. So it's really fun, and you can engage with them. Um, um, my wife and I have different opinions on babies, so when they're newborns, my wife loves that. Like, she just loves the smell and the cuddle and all that stuff, and, I, and not me so much because they're not that cool. You can't do anything with them. And, but congratulations to everybody who's got one right now. But I'm just saying, <laughs> when they're two or three, right, you start to see their personality. is so much fun. And I was just missing those days with my daughter because it just seems like it was yesterday. And now she's off to college and things have changed and it's so much different. But Mary and I were reflecting this week, seeing the Moore's little girl, uh, about when Catherine was about that age. And a couple of years after that, Mary signed her up for dance. And my daughter, Catherine, loved dance. But do you know what she loved? She loved the costumes which had sequins and had like lace and was real bright and sparkly. And she loved the recitals. So my girl loved the the dress up and she loved the performance. You know what she didn't like? The rehearsals. And so one day she comes out of rehearsal and she tells her mom, she goes, I don't want to go to practice anymore. I just want to wear the costume and I want to show up for the recitals. But listen, fam, that's some of us. We want all the benefits We want the celebration at the end, but we're not prepared today. James 1.14 says life is a vapor. So sure, we don't know when Jesus Christ is going to return, but we don't know if he's going to take you home. It's a vapor. It's like your breath on a cold morning. It could be here today and you could be gone tomorrow. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you spiritually prepared Are you putting this off thinking, well, you know what, pastor, I just got to clean myself up and then I'll be ready for God. I got to break this habit. I got to stop this thing. I got to start with this. Listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that God gets to you and cleans you up. You don't get to him because you're clean. And so are you ready? Because this is the priority. Have you ever thought about the scariest passage in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7? Jesus is culminating his teaching on the mountain. Um, It's a collection of of sermons that Jesus had given around the region of Galilee. And whoever put this together decided that at the end of this collection of conversations, one of the topics that needed to be discussed was this reality of spiritual preparedness. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, well, what day is that? That's the wedding day that we're reading about in Matthew 25. That's the day. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and go on mission trips in your name? And attend most Sundays and Wednesday nights in your name? And partner with Grace Bridge in your name? And cut checks to the kingdom in your name? And try to be kind to others in your name? And make sure my kids don't cuss or watch R-rated movies in your name? And we went to VBS in your name? And we did this and we did that and we did it in your name? Is it not enough? And he's going to say this. And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why? Because you know the groom, but the groom don't know you. But he can. 
and he wants to. And the good news of the gospel is it's the entire reason that Jesus came. And so with every fiber of my being, and by the way, there's nothing I get out of this. I'm begging you, if you are not in Christ Jesus, then give your life to him today. Repent and believe the gospel. That's all you have to do. All you have to do is come to the end of yourself and just say, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I need salvation. And so I'm asking for you to save me. It's that simple. It's that easy. And some of you need to get ready and others of you need to stay ready. But you need to wake up because no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus is going to return. And sometimes people ask, like, Pastor, do you think we're getting near the end times? Yeah, closer now than ever before. And since I don't have the chart and neither do you, then the question is, are we going to be prepared when he returns? Because either he's coming before we die or we're going to die before he comes but either way we're going to be face to face and will you be ready I'm begging you that if you have questions about what this means to be spiritually prepared that you would not leave here today without getting those answered half the virgins didn't have the necessary grace to get in And so I'm not saying it's a formula and 50% of this room is out. I'm just saying inevitably there are some who are around the things of God. They know about the groom, but they are not known by him. And I'm begging you that today you would give your life to Christ. And so that's the invitation. It's as simple as I know to give. I'm asking that if you are here today and you want to be in a right relationship with God, you want God to save you, then call out right now and just say, Jesus, save me. I confess I am a sinner. I believe you to be Savior, and I'm asking you to change my life. That's it. No formula. No say these things. Don't say those things. No recite these words. Just ask God to save you, however you choose to do that. And and then let someone know that you have. I've asked every available minister in this room to be here today because I am believing God that in this room and in the room next door you're watching me on the screen I believe there are some of you who have been wrestling for far too long as to whether or not you've been born again there are others of you you just came here today to make someone in your family happy but God got a hold of your heart and you need to be saved and so I'm going to pray and when I say amen it is a simple invitation it's a gospel invitation to give your life to God maybe others of you have family that's far from God you want to pray for them Um, then come forward and let us pray with you and for you about someone who you know is not yet saved. I'm asking that you would simply be obedient to respond and that we would literally see this altar flooded with lives that have been changed. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm begging by the power of your Holy Spirit to move in this place. Lord Jesus, I'm asking for you to save. I'm praying for those who are hearing my voice and wrestling with your prompt that they would surrender their lives to you. God, I'm praying that those who are here and they're embarrassed would squeeze the hand of someone standing next to them and that they would then move. No one here has to walk alone. And so God, thank you for Jesus that he has made perfect provision for my sin. And I pray God today that you would eternally change lives for those who are far from you. We love you. We trust you. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.